Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 19th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The average person drank 11 litres of pure alcohol last year. This is according to statistics from Revenue, which show average consumption to have risen by 1.78% in the last year. We drink 2.65% more beer and 5.57% more spirits. Wine consumption has fallen though by 1.97%. St. Patrick's weekend celebrates being Irish and everything about being Irish and for many that means wetting the shamrock and for some it's more like drowning the shamrock. The stereotypical paddy was alive and well in some circumstances over the weekend but there is an actual fact a clear cultural shift and change in mindset underway that's according to Drink Aware who say one in five of us want to drink less. Sheena Horgan Chief Executive Officer of DrinkAware.ie is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks indeed for joining us this morning. Why is it that people feel they're drinking too much if they want to drink less? Well I think there's kind of as you say there's been a bit of a a shift now what we have in our index research is that about 44% who drink do so in a harmful or hazardous manner. So that's kind of above and beyond the low-risk weekly guidelines that the HSE produce. And I think there's been this tide of health and well-being trend, if you like, over the last while. So it's definitely a movement that's there. Now, while we're at DrinkAware, our purpose is to prevent and reduce the harmful use of alcohol. So we're constantly monitoring, gathering data, collating anecdotes and insights Mm. and talking to people. We've literally hundreds of thousands of the general public we engage with on a monthly basis on our website and on our social media channels. So what we're noticing is, while there is absolutely a negative relationship with alcohol and problem in Irish society, there's also there's a shift, there's also an interest in understanding more about what they're consuming, knowing what a standard drink is and what the low-risk guidelines are. And as we say, the likes of the one in five certainly shows that there is an appetite there. Of course, the, the, the key heel of it all, the, the most important element of it, while there's an appetite and a willingness to change, we want to name that we have to make this happen. Okay. So I guess when we have the bank holiday weekend, and St. Patrick's Day, as you rightly say, there is this drinking stereotype. And we were kind of calling on people 
let's break the mold. Let's create mm. a new. Sheena, I have to cut across you. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're on a, a mobile phone and uh, the coverage is very poor. We'll try and uh, reconnect with you if it's uh, at all possible. Uh, apologies uh, for that. Uh, but okay. uh, uh, hopefully we can improve on the quality of the line. Uh, let's stay with alcohol and alcohol uh, uh, consumption. Uh, we're joined now by independent councillor Kevin Callan uh, following what was uh, a fairly riotous weekend in Drogheda, it would appear. Good morning to you. Good morning, Michael. Tell us what happened. Well, uh, St. Patrick's Day in Drogheda, I was at the parade. A picture-perfect morning, sunshine, families enjoying the parade. I came back into Drogheda at about three o'clock to drop somebody in, and I got stuck in a traffic jam on West Street for about a half an hour. And when I got uh, to St. Peter's Church, I could see anything between 40, 50 to 80 or 100 young people. Mm. Footpaths jammed and pouring out onto the road, uh, fighting, consuming alcohol, it was actually unbelievable to see it. As I passed it, I saw one of the security guards from the town centre trying to tend to a young guy who was passed out on the footpath. Mm. And the security guard was being accosted by these people as he was trying to help. Um, these people were no more than 12 to 14 or 15 years of age. Mm-hmm. Hands up in the air, tracksuits, roaring and shouting, going nose to nose with adults who were trying to help. I went round the block and came back and pulled in and... It was absolute mayhem. I couldn't believe it. Totally shocked. Uh, and you're saying there were gangs of young people, 12 to 15 years of age. Yep. Minimum of 40, you're estimating, possibly as many as 100. Yep. From, where, where were they getting the drink? I don't know, Michael. I don't know. But I could see it. You could see I saw cans of Budweiser. Mm. I saw naggins of vodka. In broad daylight, in the middle of, of my town, our town, I'm absolutely disgusted with what went on. Um, I also had reports afterwards of broken car windscreens in Dyer Street, of a group of 40 to 50 uh, young people heading up into Grange Rath after they were moved out of Drogheda. Like, this is, this is absolutely insane. And these aren't people who are young adults. These mm. are children. In broad daylight, I, I can't get over what happened on the day. Right, uh, it uh, is something that we would have been accustomed to, I think, going back years, but it, it sounds unusual to see so many young people on the drink on St. Patrick's Day at the one time in a single town like that. Uh, where were the guards? Well, in terms of the guards, I contacted the guards at about 10 to 4. And I have to say, within about five or ten minutes of that call, we, there was a guard of the van and about eight or nine guards were mm. there. And I have to say, Michael, again, it was actually quite disturbing to see the job they had trying to move them. They were in no way intimidated by the guard. Mm. No, in no way. And I actually saw, when I arrived, I was talking to the security staff from the town centre for quite some time outside the shopping centre. They had a job keeping these people out of the centre. Mm. But a lot of these young people who weren't involved in the violent behaviour were, were hovering around right in the middle of it like they were at risk but it was nearly as if this was they were soaking it all in that this was of interest and this was absolutely chaotic so the Gardaí got there and moved them but my question is who what parent lets their children down into a town in that state or is not aware when they get home that they're in that state Mm. Well they must have been Pilatic uh, and started drinking very early to yep. be in that state at that hour of the day. And the thing, Michael, is I went through the town with the parade that morning. So I was from Fair Street all the way mm. down to the reviewing stand in the North Quay. None of this element or none of these people were around the town at that time. So up to when I would have left Drogheda at about half twelve, quarter to one, and I walked back up through Constitution Hill to, to get home, none, none of those people were on the town at that time. They suddenly landed in after the parade was finished. So they weren't in town anyway. But where are they getting the alcohol? That's one thing. But the other thing is, somebody would have to know if their child arrives home in that state. They would have to know. 
And on the day, I put a, a communication on social media that if anybody had children in Drogheda, get them home. Because my concern was that somebody who was standing beside that could be affected. Like that security guard was accosted on the day, trying to help somebody. An ambulance yeah. couldn't get through. I stood yeah. there and watched it for 20 minutes from Narrow West Street because yeah. of the traffic. These, these, these young people were not aware of the world around them. All right, stay there if you will. Uh, I think we've uh, Sheena Horgan of uh, Drink Aware back on uh, the line. Uh, you've been listening to Kevin Callan there. It's worrying to hear stories like that. And I know that you're concerned uh, about young people's attitude towards alcohol and how older people drink and the influence that has on young people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we need to realise if we want to kind of prevent and reduce underage drinking it is a societal issue and it is something that takes a collective and requires a collective approach so there's a certain amount that we can do that educators can do that parents can do that the media that society as a whole needs to do so we kind of all need to play our part if you like and one big element of that is thinking of our own role modeling and certainly from our research so the drink aware index last year would have shown that about three quarters of drinking that happens happens in the home So that means our children are exposed to that. And the problem with, I suppose, at-home drinking is we tend to, we might free pour, we might not use measures, we might top up and things like that. So actually, even unwittingly or without meaning to, we can consume more than we intend Mm. in a home setting. But certainly that's where children are exposed to it as much as anything else. And what do you think of 12 and 13-year-olds very drunk in the middle of the afternoon on the streets of Drogheda? I know. Well, I I think it's very sad. I think it's a very sad kind of mark in our society that we have the issue that we have. Mm. But I I do say, as I would have said at the outset, and apologies for the line if if you didn't hear it. Like we certainly, as a society, we have a negative relationship with alcohol. The data is there, the stats are there, whether it's to do with our young people or to do with adults themselves. But what is happening as well is there are hundreds of thousands of people who are interested in engaging with understanding what a, what the low-risk guidelines are, what they should be doing, how can they cut back. You know, as we say, our data shows that one in five are looking to cut back and we have literally hundreds of thousands coming onto the website looking for advice and tips and looking for information. So we certainly at Drink Aware mm. would feel that there is beginning to create this new movement and an interest in consuming less and in changing uh, uh, At what age group, time. though? I mean, I, I think a lot of people would have uh, the perception uh, that young people drink an awful lot and not just drink an awful lot. They take other stuff as well. But when they drink, they're drinking spirits quite often. And that might feed into uh, that I- increase in the consumption of spirits that we were hearing about from uh, those revenue receipts. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's been lots of data in the most recent kind of weeks. There was a piece in The Lancet last week, which was talking about teenage girls. And that was between the ages of 15 and 19. And that was saying that the, the data was showing they were, that was increasing. However, having said that, the World Health Organization has a 2018 piece of data that looks at 11 to 15 year olds that says that figure is going down. So it was a very high percentage and now that's reducing. So it really depends on what way you're looking at it. From our own point of view, the index that we had last year looked at um, over seven internationally recognised models to look at behaviour and attitudes of alcohol consumption. And what we can see from that is that the underage drinking piece, the trajectory seems to be getting younger and younger. Mm. So the average age at the moment is 15, but it does in some cohorts and segments go down as far as 13 and a half, and which that, is the age group you're talking about there. And that the big danger with that, uh, I think, or at least the big concern you have about that is the relationship that is developed with alcohol and that if that kind of a relationship is developed at a young age that it continues through life. Yeah, what I would say as well though is we have, we've we've looked at 
having conversations and, and research with children and, and young people. And one of the questions that we're being asked or that's being put to us is, you know, the children are looking for alternatives. They're looking for alternative ways to let off steam, mm. to socialise. And we need to equip our kids and the next generation with those skills. So it's not just to give the information. We also have to give the motivation and the enabling piece. And particularly, I think, with, with children and young people, mm. there is an element of the peer pressure there. So we need to address that. It's uh, no good just talking about it. Uh, and the examples, uh, what they're learning growing up. Uh, I mean, I saw some pubs over the weekend uh, saying no prams or buggies allowed on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, and and there was also, wasn't there, some legislation or certainly uh, some rules regarding alcohol being sold before half twelve and, and things like that. So mm. th- there's a couple of instances. I, I think there were some pubs with prams and buggies in them for that matter. <laughs> Well, it's, I'm afraid our stereotype is still our mm, stereotype. Yeah. But it, I have to say, I mean, even scanning back through the kind of media over the weekend, there were an awful lot of good mm, cultural family mm. stories out there um, because I was looking to see what kind of mood there would be and what kind of themes would come through. And it doesn't seem quite the same as, as previous years. I do think, though, if you have this almost movement and this interest in changing things, then we have a responsibility, you know, as adults, also yourselves as the media, having that conversation. You know, we need to have a new conversation and create a new Mm. norm with regards to alcohol. That's not going to happen overnight. Of course it isn't. But there are stages and kind of instances where we can see it is beginning to change. And it's important Mm. that we propagate that and celebrate that piece, especially for our young people. do, Do you agree with what we've been hearing here this morning that when an incident like uh, the incident that happened in mm. Drogheda on St. Patrick's Day occurs when you have so many people, so many young people, uh, very, very drunk in the middle of the afternoon, that there's many people who, many other people who have uh, questions to answer, their parents, uh, oh, the, the, yeah. the, the guards and whoever sold them the alcohol. No, absolutely. I mean, the, we know that probably half of parents, or certainly our research would show that half of parents would... Are, willing to give their child a drink under 18 in the home setting and that there's even 14% who'd be willing to pass drink on to an under 15 year old in the home setting so it's about shifting attitudes and that you know that doesn't happen easily but there certainly is an attitude issue there that needs to be addressed. Okay, thanks, uh, Sheena, for joining us uh, this morning. Sheena Horgan, Chief Executive of DrinkAware.ie. Kevin Callan uh, is in the studio with us, and uh, you've been hearing what she had to say in response to the complaints you've been bringing to us uh, this morning. Uh, And what questions uh, would you be asking yourself of uh, the different people involved? And It's not, I suppose, just a matter of policing or or parenting. There's all sorts of influences on young people. Yeah, I suppose, Michael, when I put the the point out there on the day that people should get their children home the majority of people were in touch with their mm. children and people were in touch with me afterwards to say that they their child came home upset that they'd witnessed something or they'd seen it and that was clear on the day you saw parents grabbing their very young children yeah. and taking them to the other side of the street or, or trying to get away from it but some attitudes out there are it's the guard's fault mm. or it's the council's fault like somebody actually said the parade was stopped in Dundalk and that's why this happened in Drogheda that's nonsense. Mm. Other people will say there's not enough for young people to do in the town. That's nonsense. We have youth facilities, we have sports facilities, we have every kind of leisure facility. There's much more in Drogheda now than when I was growing up and I'm sure yourself, Michael, the Mm. same thing. Mm. So it's not that suddenly these young people have been let down by society or by their community. They were engaged in behaviour that was utterly unacceptable and the book, as far as I'm concerned, rests at home. 
that that should not have happened. Yeah. Um, and the impact that that's had, I, I know what, what's been mentioned there from Drinkaware, but the effect that what had the other day, that has had an effect on children much younger who were there with their little St. Patrick's they had on them with their parents mm-hmm. and they were visibly terrified of what they were seeing. And I have to say, I saw adults trying to intervene who also were absolutely shocked because they, they just didn't know how to cope. Yeah. They were trying to go over, leaving their own family to go over to try to stop it. And they were at risk in doing that. And as I said, with the Gardaí, the response from some of these young people was absolute contempt for authority full stop. Yeah. But my biggest concern, Michael, is that the majority, there was a large number of young people there who were not drunk, mm. but who stood right in the middle of it. I, I just don't get that. I don't understand why they wouldn't move away. And I would be saying to anybody who would be listening to the show this morning, if your child is... In, in a town like Drogheda on a day like St. Patrick's Day, you need to tell them if they see something like this develop to move away. Yeah. They don't have to rush home straight away. Get away from it. Because there were bottles involved in this. There were cans involved yeah. in this. I don't know what else was involved in this. But to get that amount of young people in one place at one time, you would have to ask the question, was this maybe perhaps something that was going on through social media to invite people to this thing at this time? I don't know. But to me, it seemed very strange. I've never and seen it before. very dangerous. Uh, I yeah. mean, they pose uh, danger to a lot of people, but uh, they're uh, a huge danger to themselves, apart from anything else. Uh, and where do they go from here? Yeah. And I, th- I think that is the point. The fact that when that was moved out of the town, mm-hmm. that people were saying a large group were heading up the Dublin Road towards Grange Rath. You know, wh- where is that then moving mm-hmm. off to? And the Gardaí cannot police everywhere. Yeah. But where they are these young people next year or yeah. five years from where now? Where are they every yeah. weekend, Michael? Mm-hmm. Where yeah. are they? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. But they're at risk. And that's my biggest concern with this. But mm-hmm. I have to say, my blood was boiling on the day because Drogheda in the morning was a family-friendly, mm. wonderful community event with an excellent parade organised by volunteers. You come back in two or three hours later. This wasn't four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in broad daylight and utter contempt for uh, traders, security staff, guardy, everybody. Even when I was trying to contact the guards, I had several of them hovering around me. I had to ask them to step away from me. Mm. This was a novelty to them. They were enjoying this. This Young was people. an event. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's absolutely crazy. All right. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, tragedy over the weekend. Uh, maybe you'd talk to us uh, about the fire at Donaghy's Mill. Uh, people are, are really flabbergasted at yeah. what happened or, or how it happened. Yeah. Uh, Michael, in terms of Donaghy's Mill, Carstown House, the two thatched cottages in Drogheda, again, I really don't know where we're going with this. It just seems that any site of historical importance that is possibly derelict, we also had a property in Duke Street as well. Um, I don't know if these incidents are um, orchestrated, Mm. if it's more than one person involved. I don't know if it's to do with if people are living there or dealing drugs there. I don't know. But Dunahy's Mill is a massive loss to the town. Um, And some of us work on trying to protect the heritage, the likes of Lawrence's Gate. Mm. But Dunahy's Mill, private property, whoever owned it and I don't know who owns it you know the question has to be asked they're let sit there narrow west street's exactly the same but I don't have an answer for trying to protect every listed building or mm. protected building and draw it the same way down to the bus depot the property across set on fire there seems to be a bit of a pattern here that if something is sitting idle it just gets destroyed Mm-hmm. And it's very worrying. Uh, and we'll be talking to the Chief Fire Officer in a, a few moments' time, uh, but uh, undoubtedly this will pose many challenges in the centre of Drogheda. Well, my first concern when that happened on the day was that in that area, I was aware in the past of people who were living and living rough in, in and around the, the houses down to that mill. Mm. My first concern was that possibly maybe more than one person were actually in that building when that happened. Um, so I, I think it is a massive issue. 
But again, it is not possible to police every single part of a town the size of Drogheda. But we do have a pattern emerging here. Mm. And whether it's part of um, antisocial behaviour, that's maybe people who are growing up with that and starting this behaviour, whether it's orchestrated, whether it's something to do with planning or clearing a side of a building, mm. it, this, this is happening too often as far as I'm concerned in our town. Now, and do you believe that people were living in the building I know for squatting in I know for a fact Michael that in the past I would have been aware that people would have been living down in the mill but absolutely on, in the properties on the old lane down to the mill just mm. across from the Star and Crescent so I know in the past you know I and others would have been trying to possibly help people mm. who were living down there so that that is the biggest concern the same thing in Duke Street that property that went to fire in Duke Street uh, on the St Peter's Church side there were people living in that property when that property was set on fire like somebody could have been killed mm. she can't get out of a Georgian building from the fourth floor mm. so again it's happening far too often These are the street sleepers in Drogheda the invisible street well, sleepers Well apparently the people who don't exist yeah, but yeah. they do exist They do in, exist In, in the official count they in don't exist In the official count they don't exist Yeah but the, they do exist Because the authorities aren't going into these mm. buildings that are being squatted like this Yeah basically mm-hmm. if the person is visible on the street that's one thing but if they're actually existing in one of these dangerous structures mm. They're not homeless. All right. Unfortunately. Listen, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning. Independent Councillor Kevin Callan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the shock uh, that uh, people felt at uh, seeing uh, Donaghy's Mill on uh, fire. The Chief Fire Officer with Louth County Council Fire and Rescue Services, Eamon Wolfe, joins us. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. I I don't think it's uh, an overstatement to say that this was a a massive fire, wasn't it? It was a huge fire, uh, Michael, and even at the time that the car came in at five past six on Friday evening, it was uh, already a very large fire. The building was practically fully involved. Um, so there was a, a very large fire service turnout. With, uh, there were four fire tenders, uh, hydraulic platform, and we also mobilised our incident control vehicle. Um, the initial concern that we had was that it was such a huge fire that, uh, and there was a lot of smoke, uh, the uh, danger for uh, adjoining uh, business and, and properties. So we, we asked um, people to evacuate those or to close down additional uh, buildings along Trinity Street there <coughs> who we felt that might be at risk um, because uh, at that stage no one knew the, the structural implications of this or what could happen, you know. Mm, well, uh, how did it start, do you think? Uh, well, we would suspect that it was deliberate. Um, there was a previous fire there only three days earlier on Tuesday at around lunchtime there. There was a fire on the first floor uh, which was extinguished uh, within an hour, um, but again, that could have that could have spread. We could have had a similar incident back then. Um, so we would suspect that there, there was no power in the building; that um, it was it was arson, um, and there were so many uses in that building over the years, and probably combustible items just remaining behind. Uh, floors that were very dried out and uh, you know it, mm. it, it, there, there was a lot to burn out. And is that how it spread so quickly that the fire was so big as you say within no time? Yes it was so, it was so large uh, that it uh, the larger it gets 
then the quicker it can spread. Um, so uh, when we arrived uh, at the north end of the building, that was practically all floors were practically on fire. Um, at the town end, uh, it was initially only the top floor was on fire, uh, but that spread uh, then uh, to the remainder of the building. Uh, so really what we were doing was... Um, uh, we set up at the north end along the, near the slipway there are hydraulic platforms so we were able to fight the fire from overhead um, and uh, that was that was very useful because we were able to pump water from the river as well uh, so there was, we were able to get a large quantity of water onto the fire uh, similarly um, there's a disused building then at the midpoint of the at the back at the, the Trinity Street uh, side uh, so we were able to um, mo- uh, put another fire appliance down there and fight it uh, from the midpoint as well uh, and eventually then we put uh, these kind of like unmanned uh, hoses, like fire monitors uh, along uh, at the riverside. Um, so we were fighting it from three sides, but uh, it was such a huge fire, um, it was difficult to uh, to knock it down. Uh, so it took, it took a few hours. Mm. Uh, and uh, it would have taken longer had you not been as close to the river as you were by the sounds of things. Exactly. Well, that was, that was uh, the, saving the, grace. the initial um, uh, incident commander that was a very good idea that he that he came up with he he, he uh, pumped water from the river uh like if we were if we were relying on the um the hydrants uh with so many uh points of attack uh you know it, it wouldn't have been as good it wouldn't have been uh, as uh, effective uh, uh, so that 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 was useful and and what uh, about uh, the structure now uh, I think it was structurally assessed. Uh, the fire finished up uh, eventually. Uh, we left it uh, at about 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, although we did actually return later on Saturday. There were hot spots that had to be extinguished again um, a few hours later on Saturday. But I think that uh, it was being structurally assessed. Uh, you would hope that the building is okay because it's such a lovely building. Um, and a listed that, building for that matter. Exactly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you would hope that uh, that it is structurally... Uh, but obviously, uh, a lot with a lot of, with the floors gone and um, beams, columns, um, it wouldn't be structurally sound, obviously, as, well, as it was before the fire. Uh, and uh, may need to be knocked. I would hope not, mm. uh, but I think that's 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 not for uh, for myself to. to no, absolutely but, um, not. But, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you would hope not. Yeah, uh, and again, like that, not uh, a question uh, that uh, you would necessarily uh, want to answer. But uh, if it's not docked, uh, what do you do with a, a building like that? Because it, it is listed and uh, very hard to see it come back into usage. Well, you would hope that it would be part of, uh, you know, it's along mm-hmm. there uh, by the river, uh, that it would be ho- hopefully part of some future urban regeneration. Um, uh, it's a, an ideal mm-hmm. location. You would hope in terms of uh, bars, restaurants, whatever. Mm-hmm. We were talking to you uh, not so long ago about how people are intentionally starting fires. You believe this was a fire that was intentionally started? Uh, we heard. Yes, uh, the fact that only three days previously there was also a fire in the same yeah. building. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and uh, we heard local councillor Kevin Callan tell us that he, he believes that people have, on occasion, been living in this building and the same in other uh, uh, idle sites. Uh, and there's this concern uh, about this. A habit, if you like, of setting fire and uh, how that could result in a very serious injury, if not worse. Yeah, exactly. Well, we were aware that uh, people had been living in the in the building, um, and uh, that was an initial concern. Uh, was were there people, uh, or was there anyone in the building? But 
that wasn't the case, but uh, we were certainly aware that people were uh, were sleeping rough in the building. Yeah, um, but you know, it was cl- so close to the centre of uh, of Drada. That's probably that's something that could happen, all right. Um, but um, yeah, it's, from our own point of view, it was the, it was the biggest uh, fire in Drada for for quite a while, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, but I think that. Uh, the way that the the fire was fought uh, was effective enough, and uh, maybe lessening the effect of it, maybe on the structure of the building, you know. I'm sure. Is there a lesson to be learned from it in terms of uh, what we do uh, when sites are idle like that? Uh, well, I think securing uh, these are, these uh, old buildings, uh, particularly um, a listed building, uh, is very important, um, and that's. Possibly, you know, if there are fires that regularly in it, uh, may have, may not have been the case. Um, so that that would that would be a lesson. Um, you know, it's 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 approximately ten years since the building was used, um, and you know, I suppose you could you could wonder why it didn't happen sooner if the building was that open. You know. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Eamon Wolf is uh, the Chief Fire Officer with Louth County Council Fire and Rescue Services. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, we're speaking to you from Snake Free Ireland. Uh, that is uh, since St. Patrick rid Ireland of uh, the snakes. But if St. Patrick was to return today and rid Ireland of whatever snakes we have in this country, what would they be? Uh, this is a a question that Ross Leahy has been out and about asking local people. <laughs> What's his name? Leo Radka. He's doing more bad to the country than he is good, like, to be honest with you. Who do I start with? Yeah. Oh, that's a toughie, because uh, I could say something really uh, on PC and start talking about the Catholic Church there a little bit, but will I get rid of the Pope and start with that? Uh, there are quite a few politicians that have fulfilled the criteria, but having said that, uh, who would I get rid of first? Uh, I'd say our favourite politician, Leo. Might have to be Simon Harris. I'm a nurse. <laughs> no, that's unkind. He's doing his best, I suppose, but um, maybe that, yeah. Uh, the government, for a start. All high-priced people. Too big of wages, not enough work. Belittling all the smaller people. When they get in, the manifesto doesn't... What they went in for, they don't pay you. Who should start with? He should start with uh, preventing all the crime and everything else that's going on. Get rid of the criminals, get rid of people that's not loyal, everyone, you know. He should have did it a long time ago. Well, definitely. Uh, the country hasn't changed with the new government since they came in. Same old, same old. He shouldn't get rid of anybody, because everybody can make changes and be positive. So I think he should give everyone a chance and not get rid of all the snakes, but maybe get rid of the spiders, because I don't like them. <laughs> uh, well, he could start and all iron for a start anyway. Um, there's a few ministers there, I won't go into names on the... Uh, radio but uh, yeah starting doll Aaron you don't go in there for one big thing a big pension and another finished definitely politicians definitely definitely has to be all the politicians yeah politicians ah oh, there'd be a lot of snakes in the country and a lot of people would know who they are just all the underhand things that's going on first of all I have to say one thing to you I'm just back in Ireland I lived over in Mexico for 40 years and I'm just back here uh, almost a year no 11 months so so that's a great question and I'll answer it as I would if I were over in Mexico. If St. Patrick was over there, the first ones he'd start getting rid of would be the politicians. Get rid of them. They're no good. It would have to be the doll. Like, you probably get this all the time, but it would be the doll. I'm sure you'd Lyles County Council as well. There'd be a few in there. 
those kind of general people I think he'd start with there but it'd take a while I think I think it wouldn't be like quick I think he'd have to stick around for years maybe to get rid of all of them Alright well uh, the thoughts of uh, local people who uh, took time out uh, to speak with Ross Leahy for us and our thanks to them for that The St. Patrick's weekend has been a weekend of tragedy with three young lives lost in County Tyrone with uh, police in Northern Ireland trying to work out what happened at a a disco in Cookstown which resulted in 17 year old Lauren Bullock 16-year-old Connor Curry and 17-year-old Morgan Barnard all dying after being crushed at a disco. Five people died on roads over this weekend, two of them in County Louth following a single car collision in Carlingford and uh, there's the very tragic story of a 30-year-old mother, local woman Ruth Maguire uh, discovered in Carlingford Lock. after being out on a hen night with her friends uh, from Newcastle and County Down. Uh, now, a vigil is to be held in Carlingford uh, this evening uh, on foot of all of this, uh, as you've been hearing. It's uh, being organised by uh, the Cooley Community Alert Group, and uh, let's hear a little bit more about it. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Anton Waters is a member of the Cooley Group, and he's on the line. And good morning to you, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, people, I suppose, paying respect uh, when there's little else that can be done for lives lost so tragically. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, indeed. Um, look, it's a very sad morning here in the Cooley Peninsula. Um, Look, everyone looks forward to the bank holiday weekend and everyone looking forward to enjoying it. And unfortunately, um, the Cooley Peninsula is in sadness after the deaths of these three young people um, in the wee small village of Carniford. You know, it's very, very sad. And I think I'd echo what everyone in the peninsula is saying is that thoughts and prayers are with the family at the minute. Um, the whole community was waiting to see could they give any help to try and uh, find Ruth when she went, when the word came through that she was missing and I know myself a lot, got a lot of contact from locals who are wanting to go out and try and help but mm. as the emergency services and all the other um, people had it under control we were told to hold back and let them do their job so a lot of people you know wanted help but couldn't but unfortunately it's such a sad end to a Paddy's weekend you know mm. uh, and uh, hen I said uh, just before a wedding no doubt uh, very difficult for a lot of us to understand and to understand from a distance. Uh, I'm sure everybody was moved to see her many friends on television and to the pain and distress in their faces as the news was coming true. Uh, all the more difficult, no doubt, for those who are close to Ruth uh, to take in what's of, happened. Of course, of course. Look, I was speaking to some of them myself yesterday and fair play to some of the local businesses. They were like giving them coffee and just trying to keep them going. You know, yes, it was very hard to due to go home at 12 o'clock and most of them like they all stayed until the news broke you know so they were all there all day yesterday but it's very hard for them like everyone goes to enjoy their weekend and they all went together the 32 of them and then it's very sad that they're not all coming home together you know indeed uh, and uh, then we had uh, that single car collision as well yeah literally only a couple of hundred metres from where they were, the, the Coast Guard now was searching at the pier in Carniford the road was blocked from where the two young fellas were killed, you know. It's very sad. Like, I think that all three people that died were from the Bryansford GEA Club in Down. Um, Ruth was a mentor, and the two young fellas, uh, Marty Patterson and Shane McAnallen, were underage. They played underage football with them. So you have to think of them, that people, them people in, in Down and that club mm. um, 
with such a loss, you know. Um, that's the reason why like a lot of people got on to Cooley Community Alert about holding the vigil and this it's it's next Saturday, the twenty third at eight o'clock is when the vigil will take place in Carlingford at the old tourist office. So um just look people want to show their support and show that they're thinking of the family. So fair play to Cooley Community Alert to stood up and organised it and I think it'll be a fitting way to remember these people and I would be asking everyone to come and show their support because at the end of the day that's what the Cooley people wanted to do, show that they wanted to help in any way they could and this is a fitting way to do it. Indeed, uh, and undoubtedly uh, there are questions uh, to be asked uh, about that particular road traffic incident uh, and in time those questions will be answered uh, because uh, they are subject of a, a GSOC investigation because I think uh, Gardy had reports uh, from people who were concerned about the way the car was driving but nonetheless uh, the two young men uh, who lost their lives were young men, local young men, uh, as you say, who are not with us anymore. Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, look, we have to let the guards and the GSOC do their inquiry and, and let them work away at that for now. But, look, it's, it's two young lives lost on our roads as well, you know, so we have to be thinking of their families as well at this time. Mm. And as you say, their whole lives uh, in front of them, uh, obviously... Uh, the GAA club uh, will be very affected by it uh, and an awful lot of young people north and south of the border uh, given where this happened and uh, the people involved. Of course, like the GAA clubs all around Ireland are the cornerstones of every community and everything goes through them, like everything's organised through them. You know, mm. everyone's a member of the GAA club so they play a vital role and look, you just have to hope that they're going to support, help to support these families and uh, look out for them in the weeks and months ahead because look, it's very sad uh, it's very sad news to have to deal with. As I say, everyone went to enjoy the Patrick's weekend and we're here on the Tuesday morning after it and there's a lot of sadness about it. And look, that's very, it is, it's just, it's terrible, you know. Mm, yeah, it's hard to take in. Yeah, but look, this, I, final thing, I'd just like yeah. to make sure to try and get as many people there to Carlingford on uh, Saturday night. I think that's the best thing we can do now. Like the family have enough to deal with during the week. So we'll look, it'll all be organised for next Saturday night at 8pm and just try and get as many people there as possible to show our support for them. Okay, well look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Anton Waters is a member of uh, the Cooley Community Alert Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. How are you doing? No, very well. That's good. Mm-hmm. We had um, a lot of reaction to the opening piece in the programme this morning with uh, Sheena and with Kevin and a lot of reaction to the incident in Drogheda on St. Patrick's Day with the large gangs of youths mm. um, intoxicated and fighting. But John was in contact. He said that the disgraceful behaviour of these young ones in Drogheda on St. Patrick's Day has to be condemned. It's getting to be a major problem, young people drinking and not caring about what they do. Um, he says also that intoxicated young people were causing problems in a local shopping centre in Dundalk, um, both male and female, and it took up to um, six security personnel on duty to sort them out, he said, and the language that was been shouted at staff was unreal. Nice. Echoes uh, what we've been hearing from Drogheda. This is it. And he also went on to say that later on in, in the town in Dundalk, young people were going around kicking um, the doors of houses and commercial properties and they were opening the doors of local takeaways, which were operated by non-Irish staff and shouting racial abuse at them. So, mm. 
very um, yeah. sad kind of to hear that yeah. kind of behaviour yeah. really to be yeah. honest with you you know mm. and staying with that as well we had Tommy in contact with us he was asking where are the parents of these teenagers and how did they manage to get access to, to so much drink and get themselves into such a state mm. um, he says it's shocking to think that 12 or 13 year olds are drinking to this level and terrorising people on the streets on what's supposed to be a family day out also what kind of repercussions will they face for their actions or will they be allowed to walk away scot free yeah. because and of their age I think where are they getting the drink is a, a valid question I mean, from what Kevin Callum was saying, they were on the streets drinking cans of beer and that mm. sort of thing. It's not like that uh, they got it at home, so you'd assume it was bought somewhere. Who sold it to them and why and how? And this is it, you yeah. see, and that's mm. actually what Jimmy was mm. asking as well from Nav, and he was saying, you know, um, drinking in public is against the law, so how are they allowed mm. to do that? He's saying it's kind of the norm now to see people walking along with a can yeah. of beer or mm. a bottle of beer in their hands and mm. drinking, and there doesn't seem to be any repercussions. He's also asking why do the guards wait until anti-social behaviour it gets out of control before they take action there should be patrols or vans to confiscate drink and drugs on kind of national holidays mm. or events like Paddy's yeah. Day you know you may wish yeah. well this is yeah, it he, yeah, he says yeah. it's, a, it's a joke of a country we're living in at the well, moment it really is hard to understand uh, I think that uh, you're meant to ask for ID of young people if they look young so uh, the excuse that uh, they looked 18 when they were 16 doesn't wash a lot of the time but how do you I think that a 12-year-old is old enough to buy drink. I don't know. Just, maybe some of them are asking people on the street to buy drinks. Yeah, well, I know. I've yeah, had yeah, that, yeah, like yeah. going into a shop mm-hmm. with people, let's say. Yeah, but so many. I mean, when it's between 40 and 100 kids, I mm. mean, it was kind of a, a broad uh, difference between the two. But uh, Kevin Callum said it's somewhere between 40 and 100 kids uh, aged 12, 13, 14. Mm. Uh, that's a, a lot of uh, young kids uh, to be getting somebody to go into the off-licence to buy it for them. This is mm. it, yeah, mm. that is true. Mm. So, yeah, you would have to ask her they got their hands it. Mm. Um, Jack on that same subject saying that while there's definitely a problem with alcohol there's equally as big a problem with drugs on all kinds of drugs are easily got as a point these days sadly mm. so that also needs to be addressed. Okay. Um, Mary was saying she hopes that these teens are severely reprimanded for their actions, they terrorise the town for the afternoon and ruin the day for everybody else who just wanted to have a bit of fun with their families. She's mm. saying that teens can't be allowed to intimidate people like that. Yeah, it sounds particularly intimidating doesn't it? Oh, absolutely mm. I might have been there with your kids and have your kids seen that show, how do you explain mm. that away to them you know? Yeah. And uh, Margaret was in contact as well. She says she appreciates the message the drink aware are trying to get out there about changing the drinking stereotypical view of, of Irish or the drinking Irish, as she mm. says. But she says she doesn't fancy their chance as much. Um, drinking is ingrained in Irish culture. Every occasion in Irish life is celebrated with alcohol, be it births, deaths or marriages, every single event. And she said even our sporting events and organisations are sponsored by drink companies. So how can we change the stereotype when we've already sold our soul to the demon drink? All right, well, the children drinking on the streets are tomorrow's people obviously. This is mm. it yeah um, John says he blames the government was a bit of a, a, com- a bit of a <laughs> yeah. strange comedy. he says yeah. he blames yeah. the government for the way the kids are today. They brought in new laws to stop people from being able to give their little angels a kick up the backside or a clatter around the ear when they misbehaved and now we're seeing the repercussions of this lack of discipline. Okay, alright well I'm sure there's uh, some people uh, who will fail to understand that uh, but uh, I'm sure that's uh, the way he feels uh, mm-hmm. and genuinely so, alright. And um, Pat wants to know are there no water hydrants on West Street and if so why didn't somebody think to open them up and turn the water onto the gangs of fighting teens that would have sobered them up fairly sharpish and put a bit of manners on them that's okay, his suggestion. Well, I, I don't think you're I don't think you're allowed mm-hmm. to do that either, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Um, and then Marie was in contact with a suggestion, actually. She said that she thinks there should be some kind of system that when kids are starting secondary school, they're all issued with ID cards, um, which carry the contact details for their parent or next mm. guardian. And then when they're out in public, once they get into secondary school, 
they have to have this card with them all times if they're stopped by the guards and can't produce this card or this form of ID. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, then the guards should legitimately be able to bring them home because they can't kind of give a reason. Mm. And if they have the card, the yeah. guards can ring the number, check that they're out and that the parents know where they are. And if they can't do that, well, then pop them into the squad car and bring them home. Okay, that's a, a, an interesting idea. Thanks uh, to Marie for sharing it with us and uh, everybody who has been in touch for that matter. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, calls there. We'll come back to some more of the calls a, a little bit later on uh, if we can. In the meanwhile, if you would like to make comment on today's programme, you can call Maggie now on 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk now about buying tickets for a show on the internet. There's many ways that you can buy tickets for an event, but if you Google for tickets, quite often the first result will be via GoGo. That's V-I-A-G-O-G-O. Via GoGo is an alternative ticket site. In other words, you can get tickets being sold by individuals who've purchased them, and it's a reselling site. And as with all reselling sites... There are terms and conditions that apply. But the unique thing about this particular selling site is that it's, and it's not understood often by consumers, it's outside of the EU. It's outside of other general areas of regulation. And to all intents and purposes, they are generally answerable to nobody. Dermot Jewell of uh, the Consumers Association of Ireland. Viagogo is based in Switzerland, but it sells tickets around the world. And where Viagogo sells tickets, it seems that there are complaints. To find out why people are unhappy with the service, we got on the phone and spoke to Viagogo customers in America, Australia, Canada, England, Scotland and Ireland. I would never advise any Anybody to buy a ticket on Viagogo, and I wouldn't advise them to sell a ticket either. Don't renew them. And I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, if you're looking for tickets um, that have been sold out and you're willing to pay extra, that's fine. But I wasn't. You know, now my, my mistake was to go on the first thing that Google threw up. Via GoGo is just not the way to go-go. It's the way to no-no. I would not recommend Via GoGo to anybody that need closing down. Don't. Don't even think about it. it it's a waste of your time. Um, you're going to pay more than what the tickets 
themselves for if you go to the site where you're supposed to buy them from. Just don't even touch the company. Go through a proper ticket channel. Unhappy customers, no doubt. The advice from the Consumers Association is buyer beware. I really have to say, if probably of most of the sites, this one comes with the biggest flashing neon, which is buyer beware, the old caveat emptor, because... It's the classic example. There have been too many situations and you can easily find them and see them and view them. There have been far too many situations, Michael, where people literally have just been fleeced, ripped off and have no real means of getting the matter resolved. They're just out of pocket and it's a very expensive lesson to learn. And the problem is, I understand the background. You want a ticket, this thing's only, or this event is going to only happen once. But it's really not worth it. This is one that comes, as I say, with the big flashing red sign, don't go there. That was Dermot Jewell there. Now, meet Claire Turnham. I set up a Facebook group called Victim of Viagogo. Victims of Viagogo is a Facebook page Claire set up two years ago after Claire had wanted to surprise her son and to help celebrate his 16th birthday, she tried to buy four tickets to see Ed Sheeran play in Dublin. I came back onto Google and was directed to Viagogo and saw that there were that there were um, tickets available. In fact, I thought I was buying the last four and I was so excited because I was doing this as buying these tickets as a surprise for all of my family, actually. Claire bought the tickets on via Gogo, but she soon realised that she was charged four times more than she had expected and that was before additional fees were applied. Very quick. You know, there were lots of pressurised selling techniques and but I did think that I was paying £263 for um, the four tickets. But actually what happened was <clears throat> that the prices weren't listed per ticket. So eventually, um, in fact, after after the sale was confirmed, I realised that actually the sale was 1421 and that's how much money was taken from my bank account without my consent. Claire fought her corner and managed to get a refund from Viagogo, but she decided to help other people who felt they had been misled or overcharged. I then started to help other people and... Um, reached out to them and soon you know the group grew. The Victims of Viagogo Facebook page has over 9,000 members today and now this is where well I cringe and admit that I am one of the members of Victims of Viagogo. Viagogo disputes sending me invalid tickets for a show that I paid them €450 for. I didn't attend this show believing I would be denied admission and Viagogo will not refund me my money. It says I could have resold these tickets and, they say, if a buyer no longer wants their tickets, they can simply resell them. If a customer has problems with their tickets they urge them to contact them immediately and say we are often able to find replacement tickets right away and in the rare instances we are not able to, customers receive a full refund. But what I don't understand is why I paid €20 for four tickets to be courier delivered, €5 for each ticket to be delivered. Tickets I never received. I got emails instead and the venue said the tickets that I was emailed were not valid and that I would not be admitted. Dermot Jewell of the Consumers Association again. They're very, very negative when it comes to problems that arise. They don't... You know, no matter what you 
read about the positivity behind it, it's not there. Because a, a classic example, people often ask, can I get a refund? And the answer is yes. But what they then say in their terms and conditions, for example, is that it's at our sole and absolute discretion. That should send the biggest alarm bell going of all time, and that's the problem with Viagogo. Viagogo disputes my version of events and says it sent me valid tickets. The problem here is that because Viagogo is based in Geneva, it is not governed by EU regulations. This means I have a very little comeback other than to request a chargeback from my bank. Meanwhile, I've paid €450 for tickets for a show I did not attend and can't get a refund from this company. This is why I've made the exception decision to raise my own personal experience as an issue on this programme. But enough about me. It would be unfair to suggest that Viagogo don't sell legitimate concert tickets. Many people buy tickets from Viagogo and some people have a more positive experience than others. Let's hear from some other customers. Here's Susie, Tara, Amanda, Caroline, Claire and Kyle. When I actually got my tickets emailed, they had someone's name on them and they were um, like 249 Australian dollars. So yeah, I did pay over the odds. I paid um, ridiculous fees. I paid, you know, if I say they're $249 each, I probably paid like $500 um, in total for two tickets each. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were both um, $500 each. I wanted to bring my young son to Codeline and I turned the tickets advertised and they were a reasonable cost. So I Googled. Now, foolishly, I went with what came up first because it looked, you know, it was all about, it was specific and it was about St. Anne's Park. Then I went ahead and booked the tickets and only, and I did, after, when I had pressed in to confirm, I then went to try and cancel it because something in it just looked different. And then I was trying to cancel it and it couldn't have sort of froze for a while. And the next thing that came through was the token charge and I'd been charged 220 euros two tickets that should have cost me half that. I'm not happy with Viagogo because I invested £550 for four tickets for the Muse at the Etihad Stadium um, in June when the first value of the tickets were only £60-£70, which I didn't realise that. Um, I've since received an email with no ticket seat number on, just a row, and realising I've been ripped off. And you can't get hold of Viagogo to speak to someone personally. You just get email after email. Um, I've spoken to the stadium. They've said possibly the tickets would be false. But until you go, so I've got to go pay for a hotel um, and find out whether the tickets are valid or not, even though we know they're still on sale for about 60 or £70 instead of over 100 that we've paid. I was desperate to go and see Gary Newman at the Albert Hall and bought tickets off his website before, Googled the tour, and um, the first thing that came up was tickets from £65, so I went ahead. Um, I was able to choose my tickets at the Albert Hall, which is unusual, for uh, Viagogo, and um, went ahead, chose my seats, went to the payment page, and telling me all at this time that there's only two seats available at this price, so getting me to get through as quickly as possible... £65 each, and when I came to check out, they wanted a bill of £360 for two tickets. I thought I was paying £65 face value per ticket. They sent an email as soon as I booked them and paid them for £1,200 saying, oh, you'll get your tickets a few days before the event and we'll courier them to you. 
So literally three days before the event, and we booked really expensive hotels. We booked the O2 hotel suite, um, suites there, non-refundable. They said, oh, we haven't got the tickets, by the way. And we're like, oh, my God, you've got to have the tickets. What do you mean you haven't got the tickets? We didn't know you didn't have them in your hand when you actually um, sold us the package. And they said, well, the only thing I can give you, we can give you is just an ordinary ticket. And I said, well, we need to go. And they said, well, we'll keep you sort of on. They kept us on tender hooks until the morning of the event when we were due to leave in our car to go, the whole Malfest staff. And on the morning of the event, they said, no, we'll have to cancel it. Otherwise, you could take these tickets, take it or leave it. We'll give you a £400 refund. Well, we had to take it. We felt like, you know, we were being blackmailed to take them because we had these hotel bookings and we would have lost our hotel bookings, which was a lot of money. We got the, the, the tickets emailed to us. The face value of them was something like, £100 for all of them, as opposed to the £1,200 we paid for the VIP tickets. There's no VIP, nothing. The seating was terrible. And it was just ruination, really. It was a ruination of our event. We had spoiled, you know, our experience, really. All the staff, you know, expected to get to meet the stars and stuff like that. And it was just ordinary seats at the back, nothing special. It's just like the guy outside of the stadium that you buy a ticket from and you're not sure if it's real or not, and you pay way too much. But with this company, it makes you think that for sure it's a legitimate ticket and there's quite possibly no way it could be fraudulent. Yet the only way to check is to show up at the event. And uh, for me to travel thousands of kilometers and spend $3,000 Canadian to check to see if the ticket will work is not a f- idea of a good time. It's amazing. But the more people you speak to, the more familiar the stories become. The reason, perhaps, that legal proceedings have been taken against via GoGo in Switzerland, Germany, France, Spain, Britain, Australia, Italy and New Zealand. They're misleading about their pricing. Um, You see the tickets for one price, but by the time you get to pay for them, you're paying a lot more. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that they do to dupe people into buying tickets, so we would really like to see an end to that and for people to get a fair deal when they are actually buying tickets. They're a shadowy sort of organisation based in Switzerland. I mean, some of the tickets are even fraudulent. Um, You know, they they, um, sell children's tickets as adult tickets, sometimes the tickets don't exist at all, and it's got to the stage now where people might pay thousands of dollars for a ticket, but they'll get to the venue and the promoters will say, we're just not accepting their go-go tickets. Consumer NZ Chief Executive Officer Sue Chetwin. In the UK, Claire Turnham has been leading the way for people to bring complaints against Viagogo. Remember Claire? She was overcharged by £1,150 for concert tickets. I was really upset, and I was upset because I didn't actually even have that much money in my bank account and it threw me into into real distress um, because I couldn't pay my rent which was due the next day and so I uh, approached Viagogo and um, I couldn't get through to them they're very difficult notoriously to get hold of and I went onto social media and anybody else that I could think of to write to in the hope that somebody would help me. Sure, sought help from politicians. I was invited to meet members of parliament and I went down to speak to Nigel Adams and Sharon Hodgson. Nigel Adams. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister agree that when tickets to a teenage cancer charity gig by Ed Sheeran are being resold on the Viagogo ticket website for over £1,000, with none of that money going to the charity, 
and tickets to the hit musical Hamilton are touted for upwards of £5,000, when Viagogo know only too well that tickets that are resold are invalid for entry, it's unfair and not indicative of a market that works for everyone. What will the government do to ensure genuine fans are not fleeced by ticket touts and rogues? Uh, Well, I thank my honourable friend for raising this important issue. I know it's one that he has been working on uh, for some time, and he's absolutely right to identify those circumstances, as he does, where there are websites that are causing, uh, uh, that are acting in the way that he talks about and causing the problems he talks about for people who genuinely believe that they're able to buy tickets for for what they wish to to attend. I understand he's recently met my right honourable friend, the Minister of State for Digital and Cultural Matters, to discuss this issue. Prime Minister, Theresa May responding to Nigel Adams. Now, let's hear what the Digital Minister told BBC about buying tickets from secondary sites. Three of the big four um, secondary ticketing sites have said that they will comply, and the fourth, Viagogo, as you say, um, have not agreed to comply. And I think um, if there's one message I could get across to your listeners here this morning, it is that there are... You know, there are four big choices. When you can't get a ticket for an event from the primary seller and you've got to go to a secondary site, there are four choices. Just don't choose Go. They are the worst. I was invited to give evidence at the upcoming parliamentary inquiry into ticket abuse. Viagogo were due to also give evidence alongside the other people who were there, but they didn't turn up. Good morning um, and welcome to this further... Um, session of the Select Committee looking into ticket abuse. Mr Wilmshurst, welcome to the first panel. Uh, as you can see, uh, it had been our intention to have Via Gogo giving evidence alongside uh, you this morning. And it is a considerable disappointment to us that Via Gogo have decided not to send a representative. Um, despite the fact that they have a substantial office in Cannon Street in London, they do not believe that they have adequate representation in the UK in order to assist the committee with its inquiries. They empty chaired the session, which was very disrespectful, um, but it also showed, I think, an attitude that they have towards their own customers and towards anybody else involved, including um, the UK government. The Irish government, meanwhile, may tackle the cost of buying tickets on these sites through the prohibition of above-cost ticket touting bill, which is a private member's bill making its way through the Oireachtas. It would ban the resale of tickets above face value in designated venues with a capacity of 1,000 or more, and the use of bot software to purchase tickets in excess of the number permitted by event organisers would also be prohibited. The Dáil has heard, however, that it's being argued that this may be unconstitutional. I understand a letter from Mr Edward Parkinson of Gogo uh, containing uh, a detailed legal opinion from senior counsel was sent to me as Minister on the 21st of November. The legal opinion was sent to my department's legal advisers who are, se- se- who are seconded to my department from the Office of the Attorney General for their opinion on the 28th of November and this is normal practice when such legal opinions are submitted. The examination of the legal opinion is in progress and I expect I will be briefed by my officials once that uh, process is complete. The Business Minister Heather Humphreys speaking last December. To conclude our report I have to say that while I recognise that via GoGo 
disputes my own claim from a personal perspective. I find it frustrating not to be able to have my claim tested as the company does not come under EU regulations. They have been practising and working for quite a long time, um, understandably because of the very nature of the fact that they're reselling tickets from individuals. It kind of comes to the average consumer as a a trustworthy isn't that great kind of facility. But if you go and look around, if you like, walk around the back, it's not good. They, there, there are no, there's no consumer protection whatsoever with it. They're, they're, the guarantees behind sales are not there because they're outside the jurisdiction. Dermot Jewell of the Consumers Association of Ireland. Now, how this affects people will, of course, differ from person to person. It's, it's hugely distressing to be ripped off and in some cases it has led to real real problems for people such as a loss of job, problems with relationships, loss of health and in some cases we've actually had families who have contacted me when their children have attempted suicide. Uh, the, the issues and the damage that is caused by this is far more than the cost of the tickets even when they are inflated and that it goes through all sectors of society, that anybody can be ripped off and has been. And um, it really is a huge issue. Claire Turnham of the Victims of Viagogo Facebook page. We've made contact with the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission and will give the final word to the CCPC. They say if a consumer is concerned that they may have been misled when they were buying tickets or they have questions about their consumer rights, we would ask them to contact us by calling our helpline on 1890 432 432 or 01402 or visiting our website ccpc.ie. Viagogo was unavailable to us for interview. Michael Reed on LMFM. The vast majority of Irish farmers earn less than €60,000. 99% earn less than €60,000, according to Fianna Fáil, which says uh, that a ceiling of €60,000 should be applied to qualify for the basic payment scheme under the next CAP programme. Uh, that would be down from €150,000. Let's uh, talk about this uh, with uh, the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue. Uh, good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. You say this would uh, protect small and medium-sized farms. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Obviously, the common agricultural policy is essential uh, in terms of the income of farmers across the country, but it's also essential in terms of ensuring that there's high-quality um, and safe food at a lower price to consumers. Um, and that's what it's achieved. And for many farmers, particularly, for example, in the beef sector, their net income is uh, is what they get in terms of European payments. So there's very limited, uh, if any, sometimes um, uh, income from the, the actual production side of, of, of farming. And particularly at the moment, because our beef sector is under such pressure and is in a, a real moment of crisis, uh, we got Brexit and the potential impact of that was standing. But the current or the next Common Agricultural Policy Programme, which would run for seven years, is currently being 
um, drafted and their consultation process has just been completed. Mm. And as you rightly point out, the current cap, as in the maximum uh, amount that any uh, one farmer can receive in, in basic payments, is set at 150000 And Fianna Fáil believes that that is too high. And as part of the consultation process, we were the first uh, political party um, to very strongly take the line that the maximum should be set at €60,000 in the next Common Agriculture Policy seven-year programme. Um, the uh, European Commission have indicated, uh, following on from the consultations, that they are seriously considering that, and they have have indicated that they're looking at a, a maximum payment of between sixty and one hundred thousand. But we are very clear that that should be set at sixty thousand euro, uh, and that that should be, uh, and that there shouldn't be loopholes, and that, that should be a clear maximum. What we would do with the additional funds that that actually frees up, as we would target at more vulnerable sectors, uh, farming sectors, and also in particular at young farms, to try and encourage more young farmers to come into farming. All right, and uh, I suppose like almost everything else, uh, we're talking in a a Brexit vacuum because uh, the next programme won't be voted on until after the European elections and until the next uh, parliament has uh, been established. Uh, But how that will be composed uh, is another day's work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The current seven-year Common Agricultural Policy programme is due to finish at the end of 2020. Um, That was predicated on the... the draft uh, proposals for the next seven-year programme have been passed within this European Parliament session. That's not going to happen now, so it may it may be delayed slightly. But uh, obviously, uh, a hard Brexit would be catastrophic, and that's an issue that's been well examined. It would be catastrophic for a farming sector, and every effort has been made in the coming days to ensure that there's no hard Brexit and that there's a good outcome, as good an outcome as possible to that. And I certainly am very hopeful that that will still be the case. The other key thing we need in the short term is uh, to ensure that every effort is made at domestic agriculture level to try and provide uh, uh, political support beef sector in particular the way that that could happen at the moment is by the Minister of Agriculture uh, understanding the seriousness of the beef crisis is under and actually intervening to try and ensure that we see improvements to our live exports uh, onto the continent in particular improving infrastructure um, working with his French counterparts at Cherbourg which he has been very uh, lax in doing so far to the detriment of beef farmers who are under massive pressure and uh, who are suffering uh, very difficult prices for the last number of months and who haven't been listened to unfortunately the Minister of Agriculture who hasn't been taking the actions that are within his control to try and address that and we really need to see him step up in that regard. What do you believe is going to happen this week? Uh, do you think uh, that Mrs May will seek the extension that uh, most uh, feel is all but uh, inevitable at this stage because of the intervention of uh, the Speaker yesterday and uh, how she has been told that she can't put the same meaningful vote to MPs? Yeah, I think what's highly likely uh, and uh, what we certainly hope for in a worst-case scenario is that uh, it would be extended, and I think that is the, that is the probable outcome. However, I wouldn't rule out that uh, another vote will be taken, and, and potentially I wouldn't rule out that it could be passed. I think where the DUP uh, to come on side and to 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 actually uh, decide to support the deal, and they are certainly getting getting it. Uh, 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 strong and hard at the moment from the farming community in Northern Ireland and from the business community in Northern Ireland mm. has been telling them that the stance that they have taken has not been to the better is not to the betterment of the North. Um, and I think were they to move, I think it could see others move and uh, potentially. I mean, in some ways, uh, Speaker Berko's insistence that there there can't be another vote. Now, I think there there, there is if the will of the Parliament was to indicate that there should be. I think there could be, uh, but but what Mr. Berko's intervention would mean that that would probably be the last vote on it. And that might just focus minds and in some ways assist Theresa May 
in terms of actually uh, getting uh, some support for the deal if, if, if MPs realise that they may not get another opportunity and the implications of that in terms of a potential delay or maybe even the potential of, of Brexit not, not happening at all, which is, mm. which is what she is trying to say. So I wouldn't rule out, though I think it's not the most likely outcome, I think I wouldn't rule out that her deal could pass before the 29th of March. That would still need an extension then after that to facilitate legislation maybe in place to actually provide for the deal to be implemented, the withdrawal agreement. But um, us, failing that, I think what we would see is uh, Theresa May request a deal and certainly uh, I would be expecting that the Euro- or request a delay, I should say, and I would certainly be expecting that uh, that Europe would faci- would facilitate that rather than uh, at the expense of an, or, or, mm. uh, to ensure that there's no crash out and to try and uh, achieve a, 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 an income which doesn't do the damage which a hard Brexit would do. Uh, on what basis, though, I suppose, is the question. Uh, what would be the purpose of an extension? Well, I, I think, I mean, uh, certainly the British government should put forward a, a plan as to what they would do. But worst case scenario, I mean, I think it's essential that additional time is allowed rather than actually see a crash out. Um, uh, even if it's just to let the dust to settle the British side and find a way through it. Uh, I think British politics is quite has been totally chaotic uh, over the last number of weeks and months. Um, and uh, I think uh, our objective, our, our first objective, has to, be ensure, has to be to ensure that there isn't a hard crash at the end of March. And if that requires an additional number of months to actually see, um, to give time to engage fully, then so be it. But I, I do think, obviously, that the British government should uh, uh, be looking to put a pathway forward, but we must be very open to ensuring that, that an accidental crash or doesn't, doesn't happen. And of course, you know, while, until such time as they request a delay, put forward a plan ideally with that, and that that's granted, there is always a risk of an accidental crash out. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, it's uh, to be a very interesting and important week, but thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Charlie McConnellogue is Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on agriculture. Now, 9% of people in this country say that their homes have been vandalised at some stage in uh, the last three years. This is uh, according to an AA home insurance survey of over 5,000 people. And Barry Aldworth, senior media officer with AA Ireland, is on the line and uh, a very good morning to you Barry and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. It's quite a, a shocking statistic that isn't it? Yeah I think it comes as a bit of a surprise to everyone. I think you know ultimately we do know that these incidents do happen but here that almost one in ten homeowners have had their home vandalised and specifically we just asked people in relation to the last three years. So if you went back further I think you'd come back with an even higher figure now, vandalism is kind of quite a broad term, and we saw in the responses that it covered everything from a broken window to an outbuilding being damaged or even a small number of incidents of attempted arson. So the, the damages that can be caused and the costs associated with repairing those can kind of vary greatly depending on the nature of the act of vandalism, but certainly something for homeowners to be aware of. Mm, a broken window, I think a lot of us would say, is quite serious that somebody would set out uh, to destroy your property like that. It's frightening apart from anything else. Absolutely. I think it's kind of, there's twofold here. So there's the initial damage and the cost of repairing that. But then there's also the idea of, you know, just feeling secure in your own home. And particularly if you have a family and you see these kind of acts being carried out, you feel, you know, you worry for them and your entire family security becomes a priority. So again, you know, we were looking at historic incidents here to an extent and that we asked people to go back over three years. You're hoping that it's not a case where these things are happening on a frequent basis. 
But again, I think it highlights the fact that people, you know, do have issues when it comes to their home being vandalised. Probably a little more common in urban areas as opposed to rural areas. But again, one of those matters where it's kind of a persistent issue, even if it only affects, you know, one in ten might seem small to some extent, but it is something that is cropping up for a lot of homeowners across the country. And uh, a lot of us have had an attack on our property, our property vandalised uh, in one way or another, 9% uh, as you say, and a lot more of us know somebody else who's uh, been in that situation. Absolutely. So we asked people kind of if they hadn't had a personal experience themselves, if they knew of someone who had, and just about a quarter of the people that we surveyed, so we surveyed about 5,000 people, quarter of that figure coming back and saying that they knew of at least one friend or relative who had their property damaged by someone. And again, you know, that that's a worryingly high figure. I think ultimately probably a little more scary than the one in 10 figure of actual incidents the fact that we have people who you know know that this is happening to a family member, to a loved one, someone that they care about, and again, you know, highlights the need. There's a couple of things that you know need to be done here. I think, particularly for rural areas where they're a little bit more isolated, those living in those communities would like to see an increase in guardie, more guard resources available. And just the importance of, you know, making sure when you are leaving the home unattended that you're being security conscious. And uh, I'm sure people will tell you that they have preferred Gardaí to be there as a deterrent so that it didn't happen. But all the more so when it's happened a a second or a third time, because you've heard from a a number of people who say they've been victimised on multiple occasions. Yeah, so in total, as I mentioned, we have that 9% who reported that the home had been vandalised. But that's actually broken down to about 7% came back saying that it had happened on one occasion, then about 2% had experienced multiple incidents of vandalism to their property. And I think that's where you start to feel, you know, you start to question your security in an area, you start to worry about potential long-term effects if this has become a pattern of behaviour. And it is something where, you know, unfortunately you can't ever truly eliminate the risk of vandalism. But what you can do is you can make it tougher. You can, obviously, having guardia in the area is going to act as a deterrent but even, you know, just being a little more security conscious, having a burglar alarm, anything like that, or even if it needs be having some kind of camera on your property will act as a deterrent and at least make it a little easier to potentially identify the person who's carrying out these acts if you are experiencing multiple acts of vandalism. Uh, and you mentioned arson. We've been talking about arson this morning because of a, a big fire in Drogheda over the weekend. One of many recent arson attempts in recent times. Is arson on the increase? Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily on the increase, but I think it's one of those things where the damage can vary greatly. You get someone who, you know, for whatever reason, I can't even pretend to get into the mind of someone who's carrying out that kind of act, but they decide to they cite attempt arson and very quickly the damage can multiply to a dangerous extent so mm. you know we had people talking about an outbuilding being damaged but then as a result of the outbuilding being set on fire the fire carrying over into the property are doing significant damage to their home as well so it is one of those things where it's an uncontrollable and if you have someone willing to put other people in danger by carrying out this kind of act the financial costs can be severe but also the human cost can be very real as well. Well, that's it. Uh, there's the anxiety uh, that people feel as a, a result of uh, these crimes, uh, as we mentioned earlier on, but there is also the cost and the heartbreak and the time that's uh, involved in trying to deal with the problem. Uh, I mean, if it's something as, as simple as graffiti, for example, uh, you need to paint the wall or whatever it is uh, that has been vandalised. 
Absolutely. And I mean, you know, those costs can vary greatly. So an act of vandalism, you know, you might get away, you might be fortunate and the cost of repairs might be as much as a coat of paint or just scrubbing it off a wall. Mm. But if it's something like a fire, those costs could increase greatly. And again, handy if you have your home insurance in place, make sure it's up to date. And, you know, one of the things we would encourage people as well, particularly when you're talking about potentially property damage or things that could destroy a property such as a fire, make sure that any valuable items in the home are covered under your policy as well. But again, those costs can rack up very quickly. It's definitely a timely reminder, I think, to people, make sure you have your cover in place. And again, I think for our, for both urban and rural areas, it highlights the need to have more Gardaí available. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Barry Aldward, Senior Media Officer with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on uh, Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Rodney Hodgkinson of Laytown Station joins us for the report this week and we begin with a tragedy in Carlingford. Yes, Michael. Unfortunately, we have a number of very serious incidents this week and before I start, I'd, on Garda Shikohano, would like to offer his condolences to the family and friends of the deceased and the items we're about to cover. Um, our first um, item, Michael, is the missing person, uh, Ruth McGuire, who unfortunately was found yesterday in Carringford Lock. Um, the Gardaí at Dundalk are investigating, and we'd be interested to talk to anyone who may have seen Ruth from about 11pm on Saturday night last, the 16th. Uh, when last seen, Ruth was wearing a black t-shirt with white jeans. Um, she's about five foot nine in height, had shoulder-length blonde hair, and her photograph, Michael, as you were, has been circulating in the media. Um, anyone that's anyone then who may have seen uh, Ruth in Carlingford is asked to contact the Gardaí at um, Dundalk or. As the weekend was in it, Michael, you were aware probably a lot of visitors to the area from Northern Ireland, so if they wish to make contact with our colleagues at the PSNI, who will pass on any information they may have. Thank you. All right, and uh, as we've been hearing, uh, the loss of uh, that young life in Carlingford uh, was followed by the loss of uh, another two young lives very close by uh, and uh, a single car collision uh, which resulted in the deaths of two young men. That's correct, Michael. As about both... Um Half past midnight on Monday morning, uh, the 18th, uh, with a single vehicle traffic accident on the uh, Omid Road from uh, Carringford. Um, involved was a black Lexus motor car, the registration number YR03WUT. Um, the Guardian Dundalk again are investigating Michael, and they'd be interested to talk to anyone who may have witnessed the accident or have seen the car in the Carringford area prior to the accident and who may have dash cam of the car in question. Okay, as you say, uh, it's uh, Guardian Carlingford uh, who people can contact about either of those incidents and the loss of three lives. We go to Ashburn next and Gardy they're investigating an aggravated burglary. Yes, Michael, um, this court on St. Patrick's Day the 17th of March as about quarter past nine in the evening. Um, a house at Cedar Road in Ashburn was um, entered by two males. Um, we are aware that the culprits were in the area for quite a considerable amount of time. 
Uh, we have sightings of a dark grey Volkswagen Golf parked in the communal car parking area at that location for approximately one hour prior to the crime. We also know that one of the males um, spent some considerable time at the rear of the house, uh, used the ladder to remove a pane of glass, entered the house. Um, he then was confronted by a male in the house and his uh, associates outside forced or broke the uh, rear patio door. So someone may have heard glass breaking and entered the house. The male in the house um, was assaulted, what we believe was a um, long extendable asp or possibly an iron bar. He did receive um, a cut to his head and was removed from the scene by ambulance. Uh, we believe he has making good progress from his injuries. Um, we are aware then that the males left in the car towards Ashburn Village and again, so it's a grey Volkswagen Golf which was in the area we believe for approximately one hour. Did you see anybody up a ladder at the rear of a house as Cedar Road and it's the guardian at Ashburn then who are investigating that. Okay, a terrifying ordeal. Yes. Uh, we go to Kentstown, where Gardaí are investigating a robbery next. This is another um, serious uh, robbery, Michael, where um, two males entered the Apple Green shop, or petrol station, on the Kentstown Road in Avon at about 25 to 10 last Friday evening, the 15th. One was armed with a kitchen knife, and the other was armed with a fi- firearm. Um, they threatened the staff... They actually put the gun to one of the staff's heads, put the knife to a female's uh, neck. Um, they threatened the staff. They um, got away, we believe, in a 02 Volkswagen Polo in the direction of Kentstown. Um, the first male um, who was the first through the door was wearing a black Adidas tops, bottom, sorry, black Adidas bottoms, white stripes down the side. He was wearing gloves. And he he held the, the gun, which is described as a long barrel uh, old type pistol. He was aged in his early twenties, about approximately five foot eight in height, and had an Irish accent. And he appeared to be the one that was given the instructions. The second suspect um, was wearing a black puma top, dark bottoms, wearing gloves, about approximately five foot eight in height, and he was armed with the kitchen knife. Um. We, as I said, Michael, we believe they, they left the scene towards Kentstown. So apart from um, anybody who may have witnessed um, anything at the sh- in the vicinity of the shop itself, the Apple Green and the Kentstown Road, somebody travelling from Kentstown towards the scene or someone may have seen the car speeding away towards Kentstown or any other information, anybody to comply to the Gardaí at Navin, please. OK, uh, the time is getting the better of us, uh, but uh, perhaps I could ask you to be brief on the final report, which is of a, a burglary in Navin. This is a burglary, Michael, which occurred last Tuesday the 12th uh, in the early hours of the morning um, at Curry's shop on the uh, Navin, Kells Road in Navin. Just to say that a large quantity of laptops were stolen, uh, they probably will be offered for sale. That's the Gardaí at Navin. Okay, thank you indeed. Sergeant Rodney Hodgkinson of Laytown Gardens Garda Station. We return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme, and that's where our time runs out on us again today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning, God willing, at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.